You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right. We're going to do two things in this last session. We're going to talk about how you can approach a guy like Dr. Zeke by asking good Colombo tactics. And some of you, this will be review for you. Others of you, it will be new. And then we're going to do something interesting. We're going to talk about three very uplifting, happy topics. Infertility, death and dying, and genetic enhancements. Does that sound like a great way to end our time together today? I tell you. So we're going to talk about those three things in just a moment. But first, what do you do with a guy like Dr. Zeke, who is throwing out all kinds of assertions, all kinds of things, and you're thinking, how do I answer all this stuff? And maybe you got a sense of that when you were watching these videos where there appears to be no clear syllogism they're arguing. They're just throwing stuff out there. How do you respond? Well, one of the ways you can respond like this in an effective way is to use what Greg Kokel calls the Columbo tactic. How many of you remember watching the Columbo series on TV? If you're under the age of 50, the holy trinity of Sunday night TV in the 1970s was Macmillan and Wife, Columbo, and McLeod. I forget the order they came in. I'm not old enough to remember. I was only in third grade, and I got sent to bed after Walt Disney every Sunday night. But that was the holy trinity that mom and dad would stay up for. Columbo is this disheveled detective. For those of you youngins in the room, how many of you saw the Princess Bride movie? The old guy reading the story to the kid, that was Columbo, Peter Falk. He played the part of this disheveled detective who shows up on the scene and the crooks are thinking, oh man, this is great. He'll never figure out that I did it. And you know, he shows up, he's got a wrinkled long coat on, he's got a cigar in his hand. I almost brought a cigar as a prop, you know, I was going to just try to really do this up. And the crooks see him coming in there, they're going, oh man, this guy, he'll never figure it out. And he'll just ask questions. Now, where were you denied it the 14th, Dr. Jones? Okay, okay. And he starts to leave, and then he'll turn around and go, there's just one more thing bothering me about this. And he'll one more, that was a pretty good impersonation, wasn't it? Um, there's one more thing bothering me about this. And he'll just one more thing him to death until the whole case blows open. You have to take, as my friend Greg Kolkel says, a tip from Lieutenant Columbo and learn to ask some very good questions designed to reverse the burden of proof and put it back on the person making the claim. So here are the three Columbo questions you need to become adept at. Question number one, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Question number two, and usually they're in this order, but they don't necessarily always have to be in this order. Question one, what do you mean by that? Question number two, how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what's your proof? Question number three, have you considered the implications of your view? What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? And have you considered the implications of your view? These questions are not gotcha questions. 
They're designed to further the dialogue and put that pebble in the person's shoe and give them something to think about. You're trying to get them to think clearly when they may not if you don't press them with these questions. So let's look at that first question. How did you, or what do you mean by that? A number of years ago, I don't remember how long ago now, for some reason, I was watching Larry King. I don't know why, moment of weakness, I guess. And Larry King had as his guest Shirley MacLaine, the actress. And Shirley MacLaine, and I don't say this in a pejorative way, I'm being true to what she would describe of herself. She is a witch. She would tell you that. And the topic of the interview with Larry King was the new spirituality. And Larry King says to Shirley MacLaine, Miss MacLaine, we need a new spirituality, don't we? Yes, Larry, we do. And why do you think that is, Miss McLean? And listen to her answer. Because we all know the Bible's been changed many times. Now, Larry King, who's 106 at that point, is just nodding half comatose, right? I would have stopped right there and leveled that first Columbo question. Miss McLean, that's a very interesting comment you just made. You say the Bible's been changed many times. How so? What do you mean by that? In what way? Has Shirley MacLaine ever thought or even studied biblical criticism? Yes or no? She didn't have a clue. She has no idea how we got the Bible we got. She has no idea whether the text is reliable or not. She's just spouting something out. And one question would have exposed her. In what way? That's all he needed to ask. But he didn't. He just let it go. Simply saying, what do you mean by that? In what way has the text been changed? She would have looked like a complete fool. Instead, he let it go. So the first question is to simply ask, what do you mean by that? By the way, this works very well when you are called a name. When someone ignores your argument and they just call you a name... Let's say they call you a religious political extremist. I've been called this before. I did a debate in Canada at Carleton University, and my opponent called me a religious political extremist. So I asked her, what do you mean by that? Well, a religious political extremist, that's somebody who thinks they're right. Are you saying I'm wrong? If not, Why are you correcting me? Do you believe your position is right? So let me see if I got this straight. If I claim to be right, I'm a religious political extremist. But if you claim to be right, well, you're just right. In other words, by simply asking, what do you mean by that? You can clarify a lot of this nonsense. Now, there's another thing you can do with this question that's very important. It will prevent you from distorting your opponent's argument. And that's good. You want to be honest with what they're arguing. So make them clarify it. The second Columbo tactic is the mother of them all. It's what Greg Kokel calls the absolute favorite Columbo question. And it simply says, how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what's your evidence? So let's assume you're sitting in a class at, um, we'll pick my school, UCLA, and you're in a Bible as literature class. 
This is a class where they look at the Bible, not as a theological document per se, but rather just as literature. And you're sitting there and, and Dr. Batten gets up there and he says, now I want you to know that we all know the apostles made up the story of Jesus rising from the dead. In fact, all the miracles are made up, as the Jesus Seminar has showed us. It's all made up stuff. And you're sitting there as a student thinking, how do I refute this? Wait a minute. Who made the claim? Who made the claim? He did. Who bears the burden of proof? He does. Put it on him. And here's how you put it on him. Uh, Dr. Batten, um, interesting thing you just said that the disciples made up all the accounts of Jesus, his miraculous miracles, and uh, the rising from the dead. Uh, I'm curious, how did you come to that conclusion? Now, Dr. Batten may get clever with you. He may pull the professor's ploy on you, where he looks at you and says, well, prove I'm wrong. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh. Who made the claim? He did. It's not on you to refute him. It's on him to defend his own claim. And you could just say, well, Dr. Batten, uh, listen, I'm not even claiming you're wrong here. You made a claim. I'm just curious what your evidence is for it. Make him defend his own claim. And that question, how did you come to that conclusion, is absolutely decisive in doing that. Now, the third Columbo question is where you really... Uh, bring it home and show that they're going to pay too high a price for holding their view. The third Columbo question, the question that says, have you considered the implications of your view, is a powerful way to get the person rethinking things. For example, remember the story of that student at the University of Maryland where he stood up and said, I appreciate you, you're, you're scientific, you were reasonable, I liked your philosophy, but you'll never convince me that an embryo that doesn't have a brain uh, or that isn't self-aware should have a right to life. Why would you think that an embryo that isn't self-aware has a right to life? And I called his bluff by saying, tell me, uh, why do I have to be self-aware not to be killed? I followed that with the third Columbo question. When he said to me, touche, I said, have you considered the implications of your view? If self-awareness is what gives me a right to life, newborns fail that test and can be killed. And so does grandpa, who might be suffering from dementia. In other words, he didn't want to go there with that. It showed that he was going to pay too high a price for holding that view. And that question, have you considered the implications of your view, uh, helped expose that. A friend of mine, Jojo Ruba, does pro-life apologetics in Canada, and he relayed to me uh, a while back a a situation that happened. He was at a pro-life display where there were large pictures of abortion being presented on a college campus, and I don't even remember which one. But these large displays, like the one the student saw that you read, Greg Dickinson, who complained about uh, these displays, The students were there, and a professor brought out his class to the display, and they began a conversation with Jojo. And the professor says, he looks at the abortion pictures, and he says, those pictures are fake. Jojo played Columbo on him. Jojo said, what do you mean by that? Tell me, what do real abortion pictures look like? 
The guy had no clue. He was a stammering idiot at that point. He had no clue. He had just accused these pictures of being fake, but had no idea what real ones look like. And after just letting that question hang there a little bit, Jojo followed up with this. Have you considered that if you don't even know what real abortion pictures look like, you have very little ground to claim mine are fake? And have you further considered that if abortion is no big deal, why are you bothered of pictures of it? Perfect execution of the Colombo tactic. And I would encourage you to use it. It is vitally important. In the notes you're going to get, you'll get a whole list of objections that you can respond to using the Colombo tactic. In my book, The Case for Life, I have a whole chapter on the Colombo tactic, and I'll leave it to you to follow up with that. I want to take our last 30 minutes and deal with the question of bioethics. We're going to move from abortion to three areas in bioethics that impact all of us. Now, bioethics is different than medical ethics. Medical ethics is how a doctor relates to his own patient, bedside manner, some would say. Bioethics is much larger. It's dealing with how medicine should interact with various worldviews. What's the worldview behind our medicine? What's the worldview behind how we treat patients? Bioethics is asking questions like this. What makes humans valuable in the first place? When is it okay to withhold or withdraw treatment from dying patients? What about reproductive technologies? When are they okay, not okay? It's asking bigger worldview questions. And every one of us will have to deal with bioethics in our lives. This is not abstract. You will deal with it. And the three areas we're going to look at right now are infertility, end-of-life issues, and genetic enhancements. These three issues are going to impact all of us. Let's start with that first one. Um, how many of you have known somebody who has walked through infertility? Can I see your hands? Yeah, they're in our churches. It's a painful thing. How many of you have walked a loved one through the final chapter of life where you've been the one having to make decisions about the care they get at the end? Can I see your hands? Yeah, already in this room, a lot of you, this is real stuff to you. And all of us have seen the superhero movies and the transhumanist uh, dogma that's out there that says we can re reinvent ourselves any way that we want and there should be no restraints whatsoever. What I'm going to do in just a moment is give you a case study to discuss around the table. So let me divide the room in a way that will help you do this. So right here, this aisle right here, going, uh, Bonnie, to the right, to your left, right there. You are the dividing point, okay, right there. Everybody this way right here, you are the infertile couples, okay? You right here, uh, you that denied the prize that you got. You rejected the free gift you were given. <laughs> There is no hope for you eternally. Okay, so this, so right up through this table here with the troublemaker that was giving Zeke all the, the headache right there, you guys right here are the death and dying group, okay? You guys over here, you're the genetic enhancers. So let me give you your case studies. You're going to discuss them for about three to four minutes, and then I'm going to pull you back together, and we're going to work through them from the biblical worldview. You guys here, you are members of a church. You are leaders in the church. And you would lead a small group. And a couple has come to you in tears in their mid-40s. 
They have been struggling with infertility for 20 years. They're Christians. They want to have a baby of their own. Now, before we just come out with a pat answer and say, well, why don't they just adopt? Have you ever thought about how painful it would be to hear that if you were struggling with infertility? What does Mother's Day look like in a church where a couple is struggling with infertility? What does Christmas look like when all those little kids go up on the stage to sing and you don't have a little Johnny to go up there? Don't think that pain isn't real. In fact, in grad school at Biola, my prof in bioethics, Scott Ray, had his wife come in and talk to us one day. She had, she had a double mastectomy dealing with breast cancer that almost killed her, but they had struggled with infertility before that. She told our class if she had to go redo one of those things, infertility or cancer, she'd choose cancer because infertility was far more painful for her to go through at the emotional level. This is real stuff. So this couple comes to you and says, we have been out to Los Angeles. We went out to UCLA, and there's a doctor out there who is an expert in infertility, and he has come up with a plan for us to have a baby of our own, and we want to know if this is okay to do biblically. Here's his plan. His plan is he's going to give me, the mom, drugs that are going to multiply the number of eggs that are released in a given menstrual cycle, and those eggs will be surgically removed and fertilized in a test tube using a process called in vitro fertilization where the sperm and egg are joined in the test tube rather than the woman's body. They're then going to immediately test the resulting embryos for any kind of defects. They hope to fertilize up to 20 embryos. They will then eliminate all embryos that show signs of defect and immediately implant the remaining in her body up to 12. Now, the doctor has told them that, hey, we realize you can't carry 12 embryos. No problem. You'll miscarry a few, but those you don't miscarry, no issue. We'll do what's called selective reduction. Once we see how many embryos take, we will go in and reduce, meaning abort, all those that you don't want, leaving only the two that you want. But don't worry, these embryos are not conscious, they're not thinking, they're not feeling, they're not sentient beings, you're not doing anything wrong here. Then, once the woman gives birth, they will have children of their own that are their genetic children. This couple wants to know from you, biblically, What are the limits? What can they do? Should they reject all reproductive technologies? Should they, for example, reject technologies like interuterine insemination, where we take sperm and insert it into the womb via a catheter, and we give the mother hormones to release multiple eggs, hoping that at least a few take? Is that out of bounds? What about if we join sperm and egg in her body through a process called GIFT, where we take sperm and egg, surgically extract them from the two parents, and place them together as neighbors inside the fallopian tube. Would that be wrong? Are all reproductive technologies wrong, or only what this doctor is suggesting? Or is what this doctor is suggesting okay? Why or why not would you say that it's right or wrong? You guys clear on what your, your case study is going to be here? All right? Are your minds fertile to be able to take this on and, and deal with it? That was a bad joke. All right, over here to this group. The death and dying group. Hold off. Don't discuss just yet. You're a small group leader at your church. A grieving wife comes to you and says, my husband, Greg, 
is in the final, what appears to be the final stages of cancer. And um, he's 51 years old, and the doctor is now telling us that very soon uh, treatments aren't going to help him. And in fact, Greg doesn't want any more treatments. He, he is prepared to die. He feels that further treatment is not going to help him, and he'd like to stop treating it. And furthermore, the doctor has informed us that probably within a couple of weeks, uh, we will have to ratchet up the level of morphine to control his pain. When we ratchet up that level of morphine, we can foresee death possibly being hastened. Not that we intend it, but we can see it. Is it okay to withhold treatment that no longer helps Greg, including food and water at the final stage, where it would only prolong his agony? Or are we obliged to always resist death no matter what as pro-life Christians? And this grieving wife wants to know what the Christian thing to do is in that situation. And she's asking you, What's the right thing to do here? Can we ratchet up his morphine? Can we withhold treatment that no longer helps him? What's the right thing to do? We're pro-life. We, we don't ever want to be about death, right? What is the right thing to do in that case? Are you guys clear on what your case study will be? All right, genetic enhancers. You are a graduate student at Stanford University. First mistake, you should have gone to UCLA. At Stanford University, your academic mentor is a world-renowned geneticist. He has come up with a germline therapy. Germline therapies not only impact you, they they impact your descendants forever. This germline therapy that he has come up with will radically enhance your cognitive abilities. You will have a photographic memory. You will learn at 10 times the speed of any of your classmates. Your ability to retain information, grasp it, learn it, execute on it, will be unparalleled. And he is urging you to take it. He says it's safe for you, it's not going to kill you. But it will impact your descendants. Are there reasons from a biblical worldview to resist, or yellow or red flag, you might say, this idea, this treatment? Are there reasons why, from a biblical worldview, that might not be the thing we should do as Christians. Are there dangers to enhancement therapies? This is not repairing anything wrong with you. This is dramatically leaping you forward in your cognitive ability. And it turns out your professor is a transhumanist guy who really wants to see the human race take a leap forward in its evolutionary development, and he thinks you're the perfect one for it. And he says to you, you could be the next person to cure cancer. With this treatment, you'll probably be the one who can break through with your cognitive abilities and do it. Should you do it, or are there some real cautionary flags? Okay, you guys clear on what you're doing? Yes. The effects on the future generation is they will too will be enhanced, just like you. It gets passed all the way down. Okay? All right. Ready? Get in your groups, in your tables, discuss the case study. If you're at a table alone or you two want to double up with these guys, you can. Uh, go. you got four minutes. Go. Tell me what you're going to do. We are having enhanced discussions here. This is good. One of the reasons uh, I bring this up 
Every summer at Summit Ministries in Colorado, where I teach at a Christian worldview conference for high school and college students to help prepare them for challenges they face in the university environment, I ask a question. How many of you, prior to coming to Summit, have ever had your church speak biblically on the issue of infertility, death and dying, and genetic enhancements? Out of 180 students a session, we get two to three that have heard any kind of biblical teaching on this. This is stuff that the world is out thinking us on, and we need to be prepared to think biblically as Christians. So let's start with the infertile couples over here. Uh, I feel like I'm Benny Hinn pronouncing things on people. This isn't good. Uh, infertile couples, what did you come up with as the way you would advise this couple? What would you say to them as their leaders in their church? This is not good starting out. Okay, go ahead. What would you say? Okay, so right out of the gate, this guy, right, this guy has proposed something that's going to involve intentionally killing innocent human beings. That's a no-go right out of the start. Exactly right. So here's what I want to do in the course of this discussion. I do not believe all assisted technologies are wrong but they have to fall within biblical fence posts. And the first biblical fence post is the one you just nailed. It has to respect the status of the embryo as an image bearer. Any infertility treatment that intentionally destroys an innocent human being will be out of bounds for the Christian. That means any treatment that involves screening of embryos for defects, which are nothing more than search and destroy missions, is going to be off the table for the Christian. Exactly right. What else would you say to this couple regarding their struggle with infertility? Look into some of the options. So, for example, an option that doesn't involve uh, giving the mother more embryos than she can reasonably carry, if the parents take personal responsibility for every embryo conceived and they either don't put themselves at risk for major multiple pregnancies through the hormone drugs, or they don't have leftovers on ice, as long as they take personal responsibility for each embryo, then we could be in a morally okay zone. Is that what you're, you're saying? Yeah, I think that's another good principle that goes with the status of the embryo. What else in the infertility group would you say to this couple? Yeah. There's a problem with can you trust your provider? For example, I've had medical uh, staff that I've heard of that told Christian parents, oh, life doesn't begin at conception, it begins at implantation. And they're, in, I don't know if it's intentional ignorance or what, but they're wrong about that. Life begins at fertilization, not implantation. You've got to be able to trust your medical provider to give you accurate information, and that may not always be the case. In this case, this doctor is misleading this uh, Christian couple. That's, that's a big deal. Another principle, another benchmark. Not only must we respect the status of the un unborn, we can make room for common grace. Common grace has to do with knowledge that God has given man to reverse the impact of the fall. Is infertility one of the impacts of the fall? Yes. So knowledge we have to reverse it is not automatically wrong. 
Now, it can be wrong, but it's not automatically wrong. It could be part of God's common provision to sinful human beings like you and I to help reverse some of the impact of the fall, just like we get knowledge to fight cancer and other health-related issues. Third biblical fence post. Procreation is to happen within marriage. This is why surrogacy is problematic. We're often in, well, what we're doing is we're introducing a third party to the marital unit. So let me give you biblical grounds for this. God gives the command to be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve in the context of a one man, one woman, permanent marriage. When Jesus and the apostles speak about marriage, they don't point to the polygamous patriarchs and kings of the Old Testament. They point back to the garden and the one flesh union of man and wife in a permanent union. That is the context for the command to be fruitful and to multiply. And surrogacy introduces a third party to that marital unit. I like what Maggie Gallagher says. She says, sex makes babies. Society needs babies. Babies deserve a mother and a father. She's right about that. They deserve to be born within that marital unit. And that seems to be the biblical norm we see in Scripture. I say more about this in the notes, but at least you get the idea. A fourth principle, and one of you nailed it over here. I forget which one. The couple must take personal responsibility for every embryo that's conceived. These children deserve to be born. They should not be left on ice. I remember a very painful event I had once where I went and was asked to just debrief a group of 30 couples, all of whom had major numbers of embryos left over on ice, and now they were in their mid-40s and wondered what they should do with all these embryos they no longer could reasonably carry. Christian couples should not put themselves in a position where they have these leftover embryos. These embryos deserve a mom and a dad. And then finally, we're going to come to a point, and again, there's more on this in your notes there comes a point where we will trust in God's sovereignty. There does come a point where we want to say, look, I cannot make having a child of my own an idol. I cannot do that. I don't have a right to a child. They are gifts that we receive. But I don't think as Christians we need to say to couples struggling with infertility right out of the gate, well, why don't you just adopt? God has another way for you. We may arrive at that point, But along the way, there may be some other options. And as long as they fall within these biblical fence posts, uh, we're in good shape. So good work, infertile couples. Let's give it up for the infertile couples. All right. Death and dying group. What are you going to do with Greg? Um, What about withholding treatment? We're pro-life. Should we always resist death? What advice did you give Greg's grieving wife? What did you say? What about withholding treatment? Let's start there. Is it okay to withhold treatment? What might those circumstances be? Uh, We determined that on certain circumstances where death is inevitable and the treatment will do nothing to reduce that, we're not obligated to give treatment. We're not obligated to give treatment that is going to have no impact at all on the patient. So if the treatment is either going to prolong their agony or do nothing to help them. Withholding it is not wrong, uh, like it would be with someone that the treatment could help. Okay, what about uh, the idea that we're pro-life and we should always be promoting life? Does that fly in the face of that? 
Any of you think it did? No. As Christians, this life is a good, isn't it? But is it an ultimate good? What's the ultimate good for a Christian? Resurrected bodies. Union with Christ. While death should never be aimed at, it doesn't follow, we must always resist it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane did not rush out to meet the soldiers, but he also didn't run from them. He accepted his fate. There comes a point where the patient is dying and further treatment is not going to help them. It's not going to do them any good. Forcing it on them is not a pro-life principle. Withholding it is not a violation because you're not causing death. What's killing the patient at that point? Their underlying sickness, their underlying disease, their pathology, that's what's killing them. Withholding the treatment isn't doing it. This is different than Terry Schiavo, where her husband intentionally withdrew her feeding tube to starve her to death with the intent of killing her. Everybody clear on this distinction? But here's where we need to be very careful. Physicians are starting to become philosophers. And they are making distinctions they are not equipped or qualified to make. A doctor is qualified to tell you a treatment is not going to help the patient. He is not qualified to tell you the patient's life is no longer worth living. That's a philosophical issue. He is no more qualified to answer that than you are. And yet doctors today are becoming philosophers making decisions about whose life is worthy of living and whose who is worthy of, of care and who isn't. They're not qualified to make that. That. What about morphine, though? What about ratcheting up the morphine? What did you think of that? Excellent distinction. What are we aiming at by ratcheting up the morphine? Are we aiming at death? If so, we're essentially practicing a form of euthanasia, right? Now, why are doctor-assisted suicide and euthanasia wrong? Doctor-assisted suicide is where the doctor gives the patient a uh, dose that will kill them. They take it on their own. Euthanasia is where the doctor intentionally kills the patient with an injection, usually. When we are aiming at death, we are violating the biblical syllogism that we are never to shed innocent blood. And we would be wrong if that's what we're aiming at. But you're right. We foresee death, but we don't intend it. What's killing the patient is their underlying pathology. We're trying to make him as comfortable as he can while he dies from his illness. Our goal is to respect the life he has, not intentionally kill him. Anybody else on the death and dying side uh, here? You're, we're all going to face this, all of us, with our parents, with grandparents, with ourselves. And we better be clear biblically what our goals are. In, in my case, I do not want any doctor making a value judgment about the value of my life. They're not to do that. And I want every reasonable means available to keep me alive. But if I'm dying, I don't want extraordinary means that are not going to help me. And yes, if you need to control my pain, control my pain. It's okay for dying patients to sleep before they die, but we must never kill them. We will always care, never harm. Good job, death and dying folks. Let's give it up for them. All right, finally. Yes. Yeah. At the final stages, let's say there, there are cancer patients uh, that I know of and have heard of, 
we're forcing nutrition on them at the very end is not helping them. Their body cannot process it any longer. They're dying from the cancer that is ravaging their body. There's no intent to kill them by withholding this. You're simply recognizing their body can no longer handle it. And we're talking here at the final hours. We're not talking here weeks out. We're talking at the very end. And I've actually asked some uh, doctors who deal with end-of-life issues if I'm correct about this. And they say, yeah, there are cancer patients at the very end. We're forcing nutrition on them is really cruel and unusual punishment at that point. Their bodies can't process it. Same thing. That's what they're saying. Now, again, let's be clear. We're talking final hours, maybe day, not weeks out, and not with intent to kill. And not all patients are that way, but there are a few. Kill. You're wrong. Correct. Your intent matters. Okay, genetic enhancers. What did you tell this graduate student at Stanford other than lousy choice of school? Sure. But should we wade into something we believe is immoral by punting to God's sovereignty that somehow he'll correct it if it's not right? Mm-hmm. So you were unclear whether, in, in your mind, you're, you're wrestling with, is it okay or not okay? Is this right or wrong? Okay. This technology is going to affect the subject forever and all of her descendants forever. It's a germline therapy. What about it? The doctor is claiming in my scenario that there's no harmful effect on the patient subject. He's claiming that. Can you imagine the sermon you could get from a cyborg? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, but um, what are some possible yellow flags here? Are there any? Okay. Two questions. What do we mean by better? And what do we mean by human? How many of you remember the $6 million man show with Steve Austin? Remember the music would start up and the voiceover? All the people are dating themselves right now in terms of age, right? Um, The speaker would come on, the music would start, remember the theme, we can make him, we can rebuild him, we can make him better, we can make him faster. What was the third one? I forgot. Stronger. We can make him better? What do we mean by better? Who decides what better is? What does the secular culture always say better is? Cognitive ability, pretty much. Why is that better and not a virtue like love? What's that? Can't change that with DNA. 
Let me ask you this. Have you ever been around Down syndrome kids? Aren't they some of the most loving people you've ever met? I mean, they don't have any barriers. They're going to throw their arms around you uh, no matter what. Uh, Why is it always cognitive ability and who gets to decide that? And to get to your point, why do we want this enhancement? Is there something subtly there that we are saying what God has made me is not enough? What gives us value as human beings? Our cognitive abilities? I will get you in just a minute. Our cognitive abilities or something we do functionally or whose image we bear? Is there something going on there where we want this cognitive enhancement or any enhancement because we feel we got to have it to have value? When the biblical view is we have value in virtue of whose image we bear, not because we can do something better than someone else. Okay, go ahead. Well, that may be what you call better, but what is? who are the people making these decisions? They're not Christians, they're secularists with a materialistic worldview defining human value based on, like this doctor at Stanford, based on cognitive ability being the thing that is better, that is good. And who gets to make that decision? These are not being made by people with a Christian worldview in reference. They're being made by secularists. And the problem here is we're getting a view of human value that is functional in nature, not being uh, or not uh, God-given in nature. It's not based on whose image we bear. It's on our abilities, our functional abilities. And that's a problem. How many of you saw the movie Wonder Woman? You can raise your hand. We're not going to pray for you if you saw the movie. If you saw the movie Wonder Woman. Okay. I don't know if you remember this scene. Uh, the movie, for those of you that haven't seen it, spoiler, it's set in the context largely of World War I. And at the end of the movie, Wonder Woman, who's this enhanced creature who can walk right through the trenches of the two battle sides and deflect bullets like she's, you know, swatting ping pong balls. Wonder Woman, at the end of the movie, is walking through Trafalgar Square in London. And she's there with all the people that are looking at the boards, trying to figure out where their loved ones were who were sent off to war. It's part celebration that the war is over and part kind of a somber reality that, wow, there's a lot of us that aren't here anymore. And she's wandering through the crowd in Trafalgar Square, and she looks completely lost. And here's my take on that scene. Wonder Woman, at that point, despite all her enhancements, is in a world where she no longer fits. She no longer fits. She can't relate to the world where God has placed her. She can't, she's not able to be just accepting of the givenness of life. She's something different than everybody around her. She doesn't fit in that world. What was the first temptation of humanity? Enhancement. Now, 
Admittedly, this is not as black and white in every area as we might like it to be. Uh, what counts as enhanced? To think about this as Christians. And unfortunately, because I'm out of time, I cannot enhance this lecture with additional material, so I'm going to have to quit. But these are questions we have to think of, and the thing that concerns me most about this is who is deciding what better is and who is deciding what it means to be human. Those two questions are being thrown to the side while we rush headlong into enhancements involving cognitive ability with no forethought given to what's going to be the implication of this. All right, good job, enhancers. Uh, can that question wait to the Q&A, or do you want to throw it up right now? Q&A. It was relative to the answer. Throw it out real quick. You've got 30 seconds. For the first two scenarios, you've got a very clear line. Yes. It gets a fuzzy, the reason it gets fuzzy is the line between repair and enhancement is not always brutally clear. For example, are braces repair or enhancement? What about cosmetic surgery? What about if I'm uh, wanting to regrow hair? Is that repair or enhancement? I'm trying to say that uh, you need to be enhanced. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Boy, I'll tell you. Things are getting just a little bit hairy here. This is not good. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that was really bad. Oh, and just, I'm going to, I'm not going to say anymore. Last point. Yeah, there are ethical uses of stem cells and unethical uses of stem cells. If we're killing embryos to get stem cells, we're clearly out of bounds for the reason this group pointed out. But if we're talking about adult stem cell therapies that don't involve killing the donor, then I think we, we have a whole different ballgame in front of us. Uh, so yes, it is. We've got to be careful there as well. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.